0: So we've just heard a passage this morning uh, from the book of Galatians that is, it's my favorite, I mean, it's really, it's my favorite paragraph in the scriptures. I love it so much. Um, it has been kind of a stalwart for me, something that has kept me grounded in life to understand how I fit into the grand scheme of things with God. And it has helped me answer this question, which is, what does it look like for the things in life to be Right the things in your life to be right, for your world to be right. I think everybody has some understanding of that, some expectation of that. If this would work out, okay, my life would be good. My life would be in shape. And those goals are financially, you know, they're financial, they're relationship-oriented, they're career-oriented. They may be health-oriented, wealth-oriented. But for some, whatever that characteristic is, we have a picture, probably, of what it looks like to live a good and right life, you know? So the question is really, like, what is that scrapbooked, uh, Instagrammed, which is like the more recent scrapbooking, right? Um, Facebook, social media curated version of your life, the one that you want people to see? What does that image look like? And, and you know, you might be, some of you maybe might be professionals at creating these moments, you know, the, the social media curated moment, the scrapbook moment, they exist for that one second, but they're, they're kind of captured forever, right? You might be good at that. The moment that you're able to convey somehow that, like, the chaos of your life, this is when people are really good at this, you know, at portraying, like, the, the right and the good and the put-together life. It's like all the chaos in their life only serves to make things more beautiful, you know? Like, the waves beat against... The, the shore of your life, and it just leaves glittering sandcastles, you know? Those are, the, those are the people you halfway hate and halfway are just amazed by. They're able to do this, right? They seem to live that good, right life. But whether we're exceptional, like social media strategists, you know, we're really good at this, or uh, we don't even have the ability to capture one second of that kind of life, there's no doubt that uh, this rightness that we seek, that intersection of like working hard and resting and joy and beauty, that it's very important to human beings. And not only is it important to human beings, it's ingrained in us, it's created this multi-billion dollar industry, that need to live the right and good life. But the scriptures speak loudly about it too. They use a word, and it's interesting, from the very beginning of the scriptural record, you have this word, righteousness. And it's a weird word to, exp- to explain in part because we've like, we've co-opted it. We've turned it into something else. We're we very familiar with self-righteousness, you know, making ourselves look good. But righteousness as a category is as old as sin. And I mean that from the moment that sin entered the world, we had a longing for things to be put back together. So the scriptures talk to that deepest longing from the very beginning. And so here in Galatians 2, I see there is again attention to that deepest longing, what we most want, you know? That season that's not busy, you know what I mean? The season after the busy season, you know what that is? Have, Have you ever like thought about that? That, that, oh, once I get past this, you know, but of course the issue is like, there is no non-busy season because human beings are compelled to make every season busy, right? So every season will be busy. And then the next season after that will be busy. I'm sorry to break it down for you, but that's just the truth. This, so that kind of rightness, that desire, that wanting, the Bible says, look, let me help you understand a better story than the story that you've curated about your own goodness and rightness. So Paul, he's still kind of early in his ministry. He confronts Peter. Now, if you know Peter well, you know, he's the guy that denies Jesus three times and he's the guy that Jesus restores three times. Actually, he probably restores Peter like 300 times during his ministry, but he restores him. So Peter is often off track, but still beloved by God. And he has become a pillar of the church. If you read about the early church in the book of Acts, this is a guy who's preaching the gospel and thousands are being converted. He's looked at with significance. People look at Peter and say, he knows what's going on. So Paul, I love the fact that the Bible includes stuff like this, by the way. You think about it, if it was just hero worship in the scriptures, we might not include this passage because it's really, it's a rough moment for Peter. But Paul shows up And he confronts him about how he's going about his ministry to the Gentiles. And if you're wondering, like, that word Gentiles, what does that mean? We have a lot of theological jargon here in Galatians, but Gentiles are just the nations. This is the non-Jewish world, right? So Paul came from a Jewish background. Jesus is Jewish, right? This is the non-Jewish world. And so Peter is ministering to this non-Jewish world. He's ministering to them by eating with them and being hospitable, and he's sharing the good news of the gospel. But then, as the scriptures tell us, some super religious people who are now converts, like Peter, they show up. And they're of the opinion that, like, your life should be a lot more holy looking, and you should only surround yourself with other people who are also as holy looking as you are, right? And of course, everybody makes this error at some point in their lives. So they look at, the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, as contagious to their spirituality and their holiness because they haven't done all of the things that a Jewish person has done. And a Jewish person who becomes a Christian, right, they've done all the Jewish stuff plus the Christian stuff. So they're like super holy. So they're looking at Peter and they're saying, you are hanging out with these half-breeds. You're eating with them. You're welcoming them. You're with them. People are going to confuse you. They're going to confuse you for one of them. You should withdraw. So Peter does. So Paul shows up and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not how we do this, right? He in, in, uh, Starting in verse 11, when uh, uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came to, from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the party of circumcision. In other words, this uh, right of belonging to the Jewish community that uh, not all of these Gentiles have done. So they're of that party now. Notice that, that they're not of the party of Jesus, even though they're claiming to be converts. They're of the party of circumcision. It's interesting. So they show up, and the rest of the Jews act hypocritically along with him, is what it says here, so that even Barnabas, Paul's uh, friend in ministry and his assistant in ministry, is led astray. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, this is how he expresses it. It's not going the direction that the gospel goes to withdraw from the nations. He says, how do you, how can you compel these people to live like Jewish people, right? Right? How can you compel them to put something else on? And then he moves on and he says, look, this is how we're justified. This is how we're made right. And it's through Christ. And this is why you can't do this because it confuses the issue. And then he gets to this unbelievable section, Galatians 2.20. He makes the statement. He says, look, I have been crucified with Christ. And the implication is, so have you, Peter. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who died and gave himself for me. He's saying, we don't have the right. We don't have the right to act like we can make ourselves more holy through the law. We've been bought and paid for. We belong to Jesus. So he was really cutting Peter down to size. So whereas Peter is initially extending hospitality, now he's not. So he's telling actually a contrary story to the gospel. Whereas God welcomes us in and pursues us, Peter was saying, no, no, you have to pursue me. He's stepping back. He's saying, you have to be like me. And some of us may have had that posture before. If you're a Christian and, you know, I, look, I, I've been a Christian now, uh, gosh, for many years uh, now that I think about it. And in those many years, any, in those decades of Christianity, I know that I... I certainly went through phases where the way that I communicated about Christianity was, look, if you can get up here to where I am, then you can probably get that Christianity thing right. You have to, it's not just about Jesus, it's about being like me. This is the way that Peter uh, is communicating the gospel, and Paul knocks him down for it. So the the ultimate story here that Peter's getting wrong is that Christ himself rescues us. And Christ himself makes us right. It's by the grace of God that we're made right. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. He's basically saying, I don't set it aside. I don't, I don't pretend sometimes that the grace of God doesn't matter. Because if I could get righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if something could make me right, besides the blood of Jesus and his grace for me, then he wouldn't have had to die. So don't act like if they become righteous, more morally stringent. They'll be right. They'll be good. They'll be okay. What they need is Jesus and only Jesus. So if I were to boil it all down, I would say this. Righteousness comes by grace. Righteousness it has to come by the grace of God through faith. We have to place our faith in God. We don't do the work. We place our faith in the one who does the work. This is all that Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you cannot lose this singular focus. Theologically speaking, here's how I'd say it. Righteousness, being right, being whole, right? Being good, being okay, being put together. It's rooted in what we call justification. If God has made you holy, if he's called you his own kid, that's where the root of being made right comes from. Theologically speaking. Now, if I'm non-theologically speaking, I'm saying if things are going to be put right, God has to be the one to put them right. If things are going to be put right, God is the one who has to put them right. Righteousness comes by grace. So think about how strange this is. Right? Think of how odd this idea is. In our world, to be put together is to construct something of your house, to to kind of stage your life, right? Like you kind of stage a house for for selling it if you've ever sold a house before and you walk in it's like man this thing is beautiful right but it's it's really just like don't look in the closets don't look in the other places because stuff is like piling up back there this is the kind of righteousness that we're accustomed to do the work create a veneer be okay be sort of holy this is not enough for god instead he says no we're going to be righteous we're going to be welcomed by jesus You can't earn your way. You may think you can earn your way. Ephesians 2 tells us we can't earn our way. It's all over the place in the scriptures. You can't get what you most need. You have to receive it from me. But the world religious idea of this is I can make my way to God. And so there's a lot of confusion. So the reason why we're harping on this this morning is because there's a ton of confusion. You may have come to worship today feeling like today you have earned your gold star, your check mark. I'm all right, done the right thing. I have sort of balanced some of the ways in which I've lived like a total disaster this week because I was at worship, okay? That might be the way we look at it. This is not at all the way that God looks at it. If he gives us righteousness, we are righteous. We are right with God. We belong to God. We are his kid. We have dignity that can never be taken away from us. This is critically important totally different than the w- religions of the world. The religions of the world work this way. You're down here. You've got to get up here because God is up there, right? But if you're a bad climber, morally, like maybe I am, you're not really good at climbing the mountain, then you're stuck. What are you going to do? How are you going to get up there, right? So there's no way to make your way back to God. There's, you can't do that. Instead, in Christianity, God makes his way to us. Paul says, I am not, no matter what you want to do, Peter, and how you want to phrase this, okay? And he loves Peter. I'm just, I'm giving him a little bit of extra inflection here, okay? No matter what you want to do, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you, you cannot make your way to God. I'm not going to set aside God's grace to try to earn my way. I'm not going to nullify the grace of God. Because if I can make myself okay, Jesus didn't have to die. If I can make myself okay, Jesus didn't have to die. It's a huge point. Now, in the Christian church, sometimes, it's not just world religion. Sometimes in the Christian church, we get this wrong. You've probably heard language about how you're kind of, well, okay, you're a Christian, but are you like at this stage of Christianity? Then you're better, right? Or if you're at this stage. If you're at the stage when you have lots of Christian stuff, you know, then you're okay. If you're at the stage where you don't say bad words, then you're really okay, right? Then you're really okay. Like the, the other Christians down here, don't be like those. Be like these Christians, and then you're fine. Then you're more loved by God. This is not the way Christianity works. So what happens is we ultimately become weird in the Christian church. It's a strange place. You show up and we talk about love and caring for one another, and we talk about grace, but we also devour each other. You know, you confess what you're struggling with to a fellow Christian. You talk to them and they look at you like, oh man, you are messed up. I am so glad I don't have your problems, right? Or you're a part of the Christian church and the first mistake you make, you're kind of shuffled out the door. You're shuffled out of the community. Or you're a part of the Christian church and everybody is so puffed up with pride about how great they are and how well they're doing that there's no room to confess your sin. There's no oxygen in there. It's dangerous. You can't confess your sin. People are so holy here. They make no mistakes, right? We get this wrong, instead righteousness is by grace it's a gift of god and so paul says look don't take that from me nobody's going to take that from you You're to pry it like that aldi quarter in your car with my cold dead hands man you are not taking the aldi quarter you're not taking the grace of god away those of you who don't understand what i'm saying you need to go to aldi uh you know you cannot take that grace from me it is my way of life it's how i survive I must have it. And listen, for the Christian, this is also the way you must live. You, can't, you, you may not pry away from me the grace of God. I may sin. I may struggle. I may doubt from time to time. You cannot take away from me the grace of God. He has still called me his child. I still belong to him. Desperately important. So what's the impact of that, Right. I mean, grace is primary, always. It's always primary. We we, we can't lose that, all right? It, it, grace is like, it's the top floor of Christian living. You can't get any better than that. It's the pinnacle of Christian living to be utterly dependent upon God and floored by his mercy toward you. That's the top. If you were trying to get to better than that, you're stuck. You'll never get better than that. You'll never get beyond that need for God's grace. You'll never get to a point where you don't have to confess your sin, right? In this life, you're not going to be perfect. It's not going to happen. So there's something so good about that, that God expects it. So what's the impact? Well, here's what it means. It means that I don't have to any longer be so deeply afraid of failure, that I hate the people around me that get things right. For those who have accomplished something good, I don't have to resent them because I know what's going on in my own heart. I don't have to minimize my sin. I don't have to run away from it. I don't have to live in relationship with people where I'm lying all the time, because what if they found out what's really going on behind the scenes? It's desperately sad. It also means that I don't have to steal the joy and the fun and the beauty of life by constantly competing with other Christians to be more holy than they are. If I could say one thing, sanctified, a sanctified statement to our church, I would say this. Lighten up. Say it to me too. Lighten up. Thank you. I appreciate that. We need to lighten up. We need to recognize that grace is a current. And for the Christian, it is pulling you along. And you place your faith in Christ. And some days you are working in ways that are good and beautiful and glorious and some days you aren't. Righteousness comes by grace. Grace that comes from God. So I no longer need to be ashamed. I shouldn't walk away. I shouldn't run away from God in the middle of my sin. I should run to him. The church is a great place for really messed up people to show up and worship. It's a great place for that. It is a great place For people to walk in the doors that, like, you're afraid the whole place is going to burst into flames when they come in, right? That's the right kind of person to show up at church all the time. So that means, hey, I just helped you. You know, if you want to put yourself on that comparison, the most sinful person you know, you know, whoever that is, maybe sitting right next to you, whoever that person is, right? In Christ, we are all equally needy of the grace of God, equally needy of his forgiveness, equally needy of his love. There's something, think about the community that builds. Think about the freedom that creates. So how do we nullify the grace of God? How do we set it aside ordinarily? It's when I think that I'm saved, but I make myself holy. Right? It's when I'm saved by God, but I, I worry that maybe I'm the black sheep, you know? I'm not a good Christian. You ever hear that? I don't like that phrase. I'm not a good Christian. You know what, what does that mean? You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You're either loved by God as a total disaster outside of his grace, or you're not. There are no grades here. I'm not handing out any grades, at least not publicly. I've written them all down. (laughs) I nullify the grace of God when I do that. I nullify the grace of God when I turn to other things to make me satisfied, right? I'm saved by God, but I'm satisfied elsewhere. I forget about the grace of God. I want to live for me. When I turn to food or sex, heterosexual, homosexual, self-sexual, whatever, to make me feel righteous, valid, loved, content, that's when I nullify the grace of God. When my home is graceless, I nullify the grace of God. When it's a place where people have to walk on eggshells, when they don't know what it's like to hear one kind word, gentleness, care, I nullify the grace of God. Think about how good it is to have a community that knows that their righteousness comes by grace through faith. And I want to say uh, a quick word about the law too, You know, just so that I'm not in any way accused of hating the law. Look, the law is not useless at all. It's good and it's important for us, but it can't make you saved and it can't make you well, right? If you know that being saved and being well comes from Jesus, then, you know, and look at what, you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter five through eight, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, this is the law and I want to tell you, how I have come to fill it up. I have filled up the law. I've loved you as my own. I fulfill the law so that you don't have to. Now you are free to love the law. If you know that your righteousness comes through Christ, then like the psalmist, you can say, I love your law, O Lord, because it shapes me. It shows me what's good and what's right. And it shows me that I need you, Jesus. You can love the law. You don't have to be afraid of the law. If you know that your righteousness comes from Christ. So when I became a Christian, sorry, not when I became a Christian, when I became a church planter, which feels like just as drastic of a change in my life, when I became a church planter, uh, I became aware of something called the Kessler syndrome. I did not make this up. True story. Kessler syndrome. Kessler syndrome was, uh, it was, it was discovered, so to speak, or at least it was crafted by the astrophysicist Donald Kessler, which you'll not be surprised to know, he is not related to me in any way. But uh, Donald Kessler, the astrophysicist, he posited this that we have so much space junk in space, in uh, geosynchronous and low Earth orbit, that one small collision among space junk could create a gigantic, cascading chain of events that would utterly destroy our ability to communicate through satellites that one mess up could build upon another, upon another, because there's no friction. There's nothing stopping it in space. These things just gain speed and destructiveness and everything in those orbits would be obliterated. I think it is a beautiful part of God's providence that there's a syndrome named after how afraid I am for the way I live my life sometimes. I think it is wonderful providence from God that I'm reminded regularly that, you know what? I am this close to a crazy mass collision disaster in life. I can be a mess of massive proportions and yet loved and righteous by God's own word. I need to know that. As Christians, this is how we engage in worship. We know that we are a part of that world. We know it's delicate. So righteousness by the law can create this kind of a disaster. What a mess. Luther, Martin Luther, he once, uh, well, when he was early on in his monastic career, he would spend six straight hours in confession. Can you imagine that? He was afraid that he, he hadn't confessed all of his sins. Six hours he would spend in confession. And then finally, as he started to work through sections like this, In the scriptures, he said, With intense grumbling, I was angry with God. This is what Luther said. If it were not enough that miserable sinners who are eternally lost through original sin and crushed again by every calamity through the Ten Commandments, the law, God himself adds pain to pain by threatening us with his righteousness, telling us we must be righteous. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I gave heed to the context of the words. In the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he through faith is righteous, shall live. He through faith is righteous. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God. By faith, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the loathing that before I had hated the term, the righteousness of God. The verse in Paul was for me truly the gates of paradise. Righteousness for those who belong to Jesus is not a threat. It's love. It's care for you. It allows you to live free in the gospel. No longer do I have to live by this sin and shame and pride spiral, and it grinds me into dust. Peter's teaching them that they don't don't need to try and pursue the approval of Christ through the law. They have it by faith. This is incredible. I want to give you just two quick points of application, I forgot to put them on the screen, so just listen for a moment. Pursue the fruit of righteousness that's been planted in you. Meaning it's good to pursue goodness. I can even say it this I can even say it this way do good. There's nothing wrong with that. You are free to do good without making it an identity issue. You're free to do good in such a way that when you do bad, you're not condemned. You're free to do good in a way that doesn't make you better than anyone else. Do good. Pursue that goodness. Cultivate it, right? Work at it. In worship, this is where we hear about it, we think about it. In community with one another, in your community groups in your homes, among your neighbors. And also at work, where we get to work for the good of the world. The second thing is this. Make sure that the news you're sharing about Jesus isn't a lie. That sounds really heavy. But is the news, think about it, the good news, because this is what this whole book is about. Is that good news okay? Is it sort of mediocre, like mediocre news? Or is it truly good? Here's the tip. If it doesn't fill you with joy and thankfulness, it probably won't do that for anyone else. I hate to put it so harshly, but that's the reality. We need to, we need to re-engospel ourselves when we find that it is not exciting to know that our righteousness comes from God. That's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of encouragement and exhortation and direction. If we wonder why evangelism doesn't happen in our lives, part of it may be because we're just not excited about this. Part of it is some of you in here, at least, are Presbyterians. We're not used to getting excited about things. All right? Let's think about that. So the the last thing that's said in the text talks about uh, we can't nullify the grace of God. You know, we can't do this. Um, I love this fact. And, you know, you may leave here from today and you may say, well, do I nullify the grace of God? What, what do I do about that? How do, I, how do I live differently as a result of this? You know, how do I do this? Well, I want to just say this, that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's what we hear about righteousness. For our sake, for us, He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, in him, belonging to him, we can become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. There's a great transaction that occurs on the cross where God takes upon himself our sin and our unbelief and our unwillingness and our doubting. And God gives us his righteousness and we belong to him. And we're connected to him. It's incredibly beautiful. Jesus came to earth in part to do that. To come to you and your inability to be righteous and to do the things that you ought to do. And to forgive and to transform us. Christ died in part to show us that there's no righteousness through the law. And you look at the cross of Christ and it's just, it's such a perfect illustration. If you ever needed to know that there's no other way to God, here you have Jesus on a cross. You can't do what I do. You can't get there any other way. You have to trust me. So the beauty of all of this is that it clarifies that you are beloved this morning. He makes you righteous by grace. Grace makes no sense unless the one who graces you loves you. Grace makes no sense unless the one who graces you loves you. You leave here if you are in Christ, a loved Cared for person. Look at the furniture here this morning as we close. I just want you to think about this. We have pews, we have a pulpit, we have a table. The pew is a place for you to be. It's not the only place for you to be. The pulpit is a place where you hear God's love for you. These are the important pieces of furniture. God tells you He loves you, He calls you to faith in Him. And then you've got a table, a place of hospitality where God says, Come and eat. You belong to me. This is God's disposition to you this morning. Don't, don't in any way confuse that. Don't twist and distort it by trying to earn your own rightness. Don't try to curate your own righteousness by being good. You can't get there that way. Know that God has called you righteous this morning. And because he's called you righteous, you no longer have to strive to make yourself righteous. Instead, we go out into the world as God's people. We love well. We love generously, courageously. We give our stuff, our lives away because we don't have to make ourselves holy anymore. We're free to pursue him and to pursue others. Let me pray for us.